Before I start this episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. And welcome to episode 86 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Chris Cuckbride. It's been another bumper week of financial crime news again this week. Actually, it's becoming a bit silly now. This is really going over the top. People should just behave themselves, I think. Stories across every aspect of financial crime, so let's simply get on with it. As usual, I've linked the main stories which I flag right there in the podcast description. We start... This week's roundup of financial crime news with sanctions. And in the United Kingdom, where the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has been updating its sanctions publications first, it's made an amendment to General Licence INT 2023-356-6356, extending its expiry date to the 14th of December 2023, when it had originally been the 1st of December. Secondly, it's amended entries in the Iran nuclear financial sanctions, the Russia sanctions and the Libya sanctions. Links to the notices can be found in the podcast description. The final little bit of news from the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation is the publication of a blog post in which it celebrates its success in defending the challenge made by Mikhail Friedman to the sanctions which have been imposed on him following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We've covered this story variously, and other news linked to Fridman, because he's been quite a busy boy in the last few months. Over many episodes, actually, I was looking back, 71, 76, 79, 80, and 81. So this episode gives him a double hat-trick, I suppose. Well done, him. Link to the blog post is in the podcast description. The European Union has announced humanitarian exceptions in relation to a range of measures allowing, quote, specialised agencies to engage in transactions with listed individuals and entities without any prior authorization. If the purpose is to deliver humanitarian assistance or to support other activities that support basic human needs of people in need. The 10 sanctions frameworks amended are regimes concerned with the situations in Bosnia and Herzegovina, Burundi, Guinea, Lebanon, Myanmar, Nicaragua, Tunisia, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, and also in relation to cyber attacks. The link to the press release from the Council of the European Union can be found in the podcast description. Staying with the European Union and news of yet another failed challenge to the imposition of sanctions from a Russian oligarch. This time it's German Kahn, who is the founder of Letter One, which is an investment entity. Well, he has lost his challenge to inclusion on the European Union's list of designated persons. Kahn was originally sanctioned because of his links to Putin, well, who wasn't, and his involvement with the Alpha Group, which controls Russia's largest retailer and private bank. Designated oligarchs don't appear to be having much luck when it comes to challenging sanctions, having failed to challenge them in a range of jurisdictions across the world where they have been designated. 
it would seem that what the relevant authorities are looking for is a total distancing from relations with Putin and those close to him before consideration of a change of status is made. Now, in the US, the Office of Financial Assets Control, or OFAC, has announced the designation of hacking group Sinbad.io for its activities. Sinbad.io, or Sinbad, is, quotes, a virtual currency mixer that serves as a key money laundering tool of the OFAC-designated Lazarus Group, a state-sponsored cyber-hacking group of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or North Korea. Sinbad has processed millions of dollars worth of virtual currency from Lazarus Group heists, including the Horizon Bridge and Axie Infinity heists. Sinbad is also used by cybercriminals to obfuscate transactions linked to malign activities, such as sanctions evasion, drug trafficking, the purchase of child sexual abuse materials, and additional illicit sales on darknet marketplaces. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. And this week's sanctions news ends with a roundup of stories relating to Russia. First, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has issued two decrees validating the decision of the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine concerning the imposition of sanctions on a range of Russian entities, Russian-controlled regions of Ukraine, and Russian citizens across a number of countries. In terms of the impact on sanctions, Russia, or in terms of the impact of sanctions, I should say rather, Russia has announced that the swift imposition of sanctions by various nations following its invasion of Ukraine caught its aviation industry somewhat off guard, resulting in the loss of 76 aircraft, which were at, quotes, technical stops, were being serviced abroad, or were preparing for transit. There are 1,167 commercial aircraft remaining with Russian airlines. Following the sanctions imposed on Russian oil exports with the price cap, as is being reported by Reuters, three major Greek companies have ceased the transportation of Russian oil so as to avoid becoming collateral damage of the US sanctions regime. Can't imagine, well, can't imagine the Kremlin will react terribly positively to that news if its reaction to Moldova's decision this week is anything to go by, because Moldova has decided to align itself with the EU sanctions regime uh, in full. Uh, Russia has denounced the move, which it regards as hostile. And finally, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists is reporting that Cypriot authorities face increasing scrutiny to explain how the country became used as a base through which oligarch Alexei Mordashov was able to evade sanctions imposed. Link to that story is in the podcast description. Now, that's it for sanctions. We move to look at fraud news. There's not a lot of fraud news, but there's a little bit of interesting news in that area. As I said, the substantive fraud news is a little bit thin on the ground, but there are some things to keep you interested, and I'm going to direct you to some reading as well. But before that, the Crown Prosecution Service in England has announced that one of five individuals convicted of a carbon credits fraud 
has been sentenced to an additional eight-year term of imprisonment for failing to pay the sum of £2.7 million, which represented a confiscation order which had been made against him. The link to the CPS press release is in the podcast description. In other news, the Serious Fraud Office, or the SFO, has also announced the sentencing of a former solicitor for tipping off. As we reported in episode 84 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, William Osmond, quotes, disclosed confidential details about an investigation and forged a legal document in an attempt to mislead investigators. Osmond, the co-founder of a London-based commercial and property law firm Osmond and Osmond Solicitors Limited, is the first ever solicitor the SFO has prosecuted with tipping off a client. Solicitors are legally obliged not to share details of money laundering investigations into their clients. Osmond was also the acting money laundering reporting officer for the firm, meaning he was expected to report any suspicions of money laundering to the authorities. Well, this week at the Old Bailey, Osmond was sentenced to nine months in prison, which has been suspended for 18 months for tipping off his client about the SFO money laundering investigation and issuing investigators with a forged document. Osmond would also ordered to complete 100 hours of unpaid work and paid £5,000 towards the SFO's costs. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. And finally on fraud this week, directions to a couple of stories worth reading. First, The Guardian in the United Kingdom has published an in-depth story on the impact of romance fraud and how the victims are fighting back against the fraudsters to help others avoid becoming victims. The second article is a roundup of seminars delivered earlier this year by Ancora Consulting Group, LLC, on the subject of how to commit accounting fraud, why this can ultimately lead to corporate collapse. The article, which is the first in a series, will look at the relevance to the current economic climate to the levels of fraud being committed, so whether there is any link between the economic difficulties people are experiencing and the levels of fraud, which we've variously reported anyway on the high levels of fraud that are being committed. How creative accounting can be used to distort financial performance, and there have been, again, stories of that recently in some prosecutions, high-profile prosecutions, coming in the pipeline. It looks at some case study examples and the warning signs and the characteristics of a company or founder that leave it open to fraud of this type. Take a look at this article and keep tabs on for future publications in the series. Link to both articles, the Guardian one and the one from the consulting group, can be found in the podcast description. Now, this week there's a little bit of money laundering news and it emanates really from the European Union, specifically the European Banking Authority or the EBA, which has first opened a consultation on new guidelines for the prevention of abuse of funds and certain crypto asset transfers for money laundering and terrorist financing purposes. As the press release provides, these travel rule guidelines specify the steps that payment service providers, or PSPs, intermediary PSPs, or IPSPs, crypto asset service provided, or CASPs, and intermediary CASPs, ICASPs, should take to detect missing or incomplete information that accompanies a transfer of funds or crypto assets. 
They also detail the procedures all these providers should put in place to manage a transfer of funds or a transfer of crypto assets that lacks the required information. These guidelines aimed at foregoing uh, sorry these guidelines aim at forging a common understanding to ensure the consistent application of European Union law as well as a stronger anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism regime. The consultation runs until the 26th of February 2024. The second announcement from the EBA this week is the extension of its guidance to AML and CFT supervisors on crypto asset service providers, or CASPs, as I mentioned earlier, which will operate from the 30th of December 2024. Links both to the consultation and the guidelines can be found in the podcast description. Thirdly, and almost finally, from the EBA, the European Banking Authority, this week, it's issued its guidance amending guidelines EBA GL 2021 forward slash 16 on the characteristics of a risk-based approach to money laundering and terrorist financing supervision and the steps to be taken when conducting supervision on a risk-sensitive basis under Article 4810 of Directive of the EU 2015-849, the Risk-Based Supervision Guidelines. Now, I almost say finally because a corrigendum was issued to that document which was published So the link to the final report and the corrigendum are in the podcast description. The final piece of news or money laundering news this week is from Spotlight on Corruption, the organisation which is committed to the exposure of corruption in the UK and elsewhere. Well, it has published its response to Her Majesty's, no, His Majesty's Treasury's anti-money laundering consultation. Its lengthy submission is linked in the podcast description. Now, there's a general, a generally large wedge of bribery and anti-corruption news, and it sends us back a few weeks. So we'll start with that piece of news, which is from Entain, the owner of bookmakers Ladbrooks and Coral, which has agreed to pay £585 million in settlement of the bribery inquiry into its operations with a former business owned in Turkey. Between 2011 and 2017, Entain owned a Turkish-facing online gambling and gaming business, which His Majesty's Revenue and Customs investigated for corporate offending under the Bribery Act 2010. I trailed this story in episodes 61, 71 and 72 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast and Entain had already set aside £585 million to meet the deferred prosecution agreement which it was negotiating with the Crown Prosecution Service. Now the link to the press release is from Entain PLC is in the podcast description but that's not the end of the story this week because Entain really has had troubles for a while it was swiftly followed that news that of the agreed sum for the deferred prosecution prosecution agreement it was swiftly followed with news from Goldman Sachs the investment bank which had downgraded its rating of the corporation from buy to sell expressing concerns about amongst other things, business growth. In the time we've been talking about this problem with its Turkish business, so from episodes uh, 61 through 71, 72, and now in this episode, Entain's share price has fallen from around 1,400 pence per share to a close at the end of the week around 800 pence per share. 
So I'm sure that cell instruction or rating is not going to help it. In Europe and to the European Union, where the Vice President of the European Commission for Values and Transparency, Vera Jourova, has been praising efforts by the Ukrainian regime for its actions designed to reduce corruption as the country turns away from the East and towards the West, and especially its stated wish to accede to the European Union. However, all might not be so rosy with the bloc itself, as a release this week by Transparency International might indicate, which warns of the dangers of undue influence in the European Union itself, and also in the member, the individual member nation states of the European Union. What it says is that there are, quotes many instances throughout Europe of business people with close ties to power seemingly getting advantages, even in countries with less public sector corruption like Estonia, major political donors are winning a significant share of public tenders public officials having serious conflicts of interest between their duties to the public and their own priorities is also too common. And this happens at various levels. The link to that publication, which is worth reading, is in the podcast description. The United States has issued a press release relating to the bilateral cooperation between itself and its NATO ally, North Macedonia. The bilateral cooperation covers a range of topic areas, but with a particularised commitment to fighting corruption. As the press release, uh, release provides, US assistance works to strengthen rule of law and good governance through systemic reforms across sectors, anti-corruption efforts and greater transparency. Link to the press release in that regard is in the podcast description. And finally, on bribery and corruption this week... I want to flag a new piece of research relating to health procurement and the COVID-19 pandemic, which was published this week in the journal Globalization and Health. The research identifies three key findings. First, the high demand in combination with global shortages of essential medicines and health supplies during the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated corruption risks globally. Second, low- and middle-income countries have been particularly vulnerable to corruption during the COVID-19 pandemic, secondary to limited access to health resources, limited technical and financial resources for adequate quality assurance, and weak pharmaceutical governance. Lastly, the research indicates, quotes, more research is needed surrounding effective anti-corruption, transparency, and accountability mechanisms to minimise corruption during future health crises. These collective findings support a call to action for global health actors to enact policies targeted at reducing corruption while increasing accountability and transparency, specifically in times of health crises. In addition, this rapid review has highlighted substantial gaps in the available evidence and can serve as a guide to future research. Now, all of that is quoted from the research. The research is open access. Normally these things are behind a, a virtually impenetrable paywall unless you're willing to pay 20 or 30 quid for the article or you happen to be a member of a university. So it's good that it's open access. So no sign-in is required. And because of that, I've linked the article in the podcast description. 
Now, before we do our usual roundup of cyber attack news this week, just a bit of general general financial crime news to throw at you. Uh, this is from the Principal Associate Deputy Director G- Attorney General Marshall Miller, who has delivered a speech at the New York City Bar Association's International White Collar Crime Symposium. These have been published. The details of the speech have been published on the Department of Justice's website. The speech, well, when they tend to be at these uh, association symposia, what they tend to be is fairly broad-ranging speeches. And this speech is, frankly, also a broad-ranging one. The speech looked at the evolution of corporate enforcement as the intersection of corporate crime and the threat risks to global and U.S. security become increasingly accentuated. Quotes, From terrorist financing, sanctions evasion and export control circumvention to cybercrime and crypto-enabled crime, sophisticated white-collar criminals are contributing to global instability and threatening U.S. national security to a degree never seen before. More resources are being provided to meet this challenge head-on, he says, including an increase in headcount with, quote, 25 new corporate crime prosecutors to our National Security Division and increasing by 40% the number of prosecutors in the Criminal Division's Bank Integrity Unit, which prosecutes violations of U.S. sanctions and the Bank Secrecy Act by financial institutions and executives. The speech also considers its, quote, modernizing corporate enforcement program by targeting the most important white-collar cases where the department can make the most impact. That includes charging the most culpable corporate executives, no matter how high they rank on the company organization chart, and taking those cases to trial on an increasingly frequent basis. The speech also covers the recent action taken against Binance and its founder and CEO, Shangzheng Zhao. And that's it. No more spoilers from that. Link to the speech is in the podcast description. Now we end this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast as we end every episode at the moment with a roundup of cyber attack news. And there's been a good deal of it. And it's, as ever, very interesting news. Starts with news from the United Kingdom, where a cyber attack has been committed on a property conveyancing service, which is used by around 80 law firms, and the attack has brought to a halt thousands of house sales which have been disrupted because of it. The company CTS suffered the attack last week, and while it was working on restoration of services, it could not be said with confidence when this would happen. It's worth mentioning that, as an aside, when the Land Registration Act 2002, which is the principal statute governing registration of title in England and Wales, Wales, when that was introduced earlier this century, it was envisaged that e-conveyancing would rule the transfer of title ownership in English land law. I think that in light of the rise in cyber attacks on all manner of agencies, not just those connected to conveyancing and so on, more thought ought to go into the risk management of such processes and any disruption that they're likely to cause, especially in an area like this one where mortgage offers tend to be time sensitive. 
Uh, in news which may be related to this, Paul Offley, the compliance officer of the Guild of Property Professionals, has warned estate agents that the increase in attacks on those operating in the property sector should be sufficient to put them on alert. Well, yep, indeed, I'd agree with that one, especially in light of this conveyancing attack. Now, again, I've mentioned about the time-sensitive nature of mortgage offers and how that can collapse, or a deal can collapse if there are any delays. As a footnote to this attack, human interest stories are now popping up throughout the press, and there were so many this week. I couldn't pick. I didn't want to pick on any specifically. There are plenty of human interest stories linked to this cyber attack. That several house sale completions have been put at threat because of it. Now, news of another cyber attack on a public library, only this time in Toronto. Such is the severity of the attack that services will not return until 2024. This is a further instance of attacks on public goods where the cyber defences may not be as highly prioritised because of limited budgets and other necessary spends. Now, while on this subject, the British Library cyber attack continues to affect its online services. I checked again this week and the thesis service is still offline. It's been a goodly period of time now. So it is a significant attack and it has caused a huge amount of disruption. In South Korea, further attacks on government websites has taken them offline. This news comes in the wake of the Concordat, which was agreed between the South Korean government and the UK government on cybersecurity, amongst other things. You may remember that I reported it in last week's edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. The Website and apps taken offline by the attack relate to the provision of online ID services. Sticking with government, only this time it's local government in the United Kingdom where Gloucester City Council, which is a local authority in the UK, has been reprimanded by the Information Commissioner's Office for a failure to have in place the correct monitoring systems. The council had suffered a ransomware attack in December 2021 and here we are three two no two years later let me get my arithmetic right two years later and the effects are still being felt the in commission uh, the information commission's office will frequently um, take those to task who are the victims themselves of the cyber attack but for not having the proper processes in place, as was the situation with Gloucester City Council, at least so it seems. Now to more public utilities and their vulnerability to cyber attack, with news that for a brief period, an Iranian government-linked cyber group had control of a US water system. The attack, believed to have been carried out by the Cyber Avengers, is against any entity with a link to Israel, including using Israeli-supplied materials in systems. The attack continues to be, to be investigated by the federal government. Other news from the US is that is that of a takedown where a hacker and fraudster has pleaded guilty to a range of offences. Idris Deo Mustafa, a national of Nigeria and the United Kingdom, has pleaded guilty to charges of computer intrusion, securities fraud, wire fraud and access device fraud based on his involvement in in a ring of hackers and fraudsters who broke into America's 
email and brokerage accounts in order to defraud and steal over $6 million from their victims. Mustafa was arrested in the United Kingdom in August 2021 and was extradited to the United States in August 2023. When sentenced, he will face up to 20 years imprisonment. Link to the Department of Justice press release from which I was just quoting is in the podcast description. Uh, after plenty of reports in recent weeks concerning cyber attacks on hospitals, it's been announced from the UK that the King Edward VII Hospital in London has been the subject of a cyber attack, which uncommonly is being investigated by GCHQ, which is the United Kingdom's um, snooping agency, I suppose you would call it. It tracks and monitors activity around the world. Typically, a cyber attack will be investigated by the police and the National Cyber Security Centre, but not in this case. I suspect the reason here is that the hospital is a private one, and not only is it a private one, since that probably wouldn't warrant the investigation from GCHQ itself, but it is a private hospital used by the British royal family, so that may have altered things a little bit. Now to some positive news on the cyber attack front, where Europol has announced that a coordinated effort in a coordinated effort, a ransomware gang has been dismantled in Ukraine following a search of over 30 properties across the country. As the press release provides, quotes, the individuals under investigation are believed to be part of a network responsible for a series of high-profile ransomware attacks against organizations in 71 countries. These cyber actors are known for specifically targeting large corporations, effectively bringing their businesses to a standstill. The suspects had different roles in this organization. Some of them are thought to be involved in compromising the IT networks of their targets, while others are suspected of being in charge of laundering cryptocurrency payments made by victims to decrypt their files. Link to the Europol press release is in the podcast description. Another interesting piece of news comes from Australia, where it's being reported that the increase in cyber attacks across the country has brought about an increase in new roles for those with knowledge and experience of fighting cyber attacks. The report by the cybersecurity firm Trellix found that around 60% of Australian businesses are likely to create new roles and increase headcount following a cyber attack. So, start polishing up your CVs, people. That is it for episode 86 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me, all being well, next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>